Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with our guest today. Uh, her name is Helen Pluckrose. Uh, you may detect from her accent that she's from across the pond uh, in the UK. She is the, the editor-in-chief of what's called Aereo Magazine. It's a, it's a digital opinion and analysis magazine focused on current affairs, uh, in particular having to do with humanism, reason, science, politics, culture, and human rights, committed to uh, the defense of free speech. Uh, and so, uh, Helen, you'll be pleased to know that Sean and I have just subscribed to it. Yes. Uh, just in the, la- in the last few minutes. Uh, and have, oh, have found it to be very insightful. We're, we're here interviewing Helen today because she and her colleague James Lindsay have provided a very helpful new book called Critical, but really slash through cynical theories, uh, subtitled How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. So it's, it's a fascinating book, a, a terrific read, uh, very insightful in a lot of the... Uh, the current cultural trend, the philosophical underpinnings of a lot of the current cultural trends that we're dealing with today. So, Helen, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time because I know it's significantly later in the day over there than it is for us here in, in the U.S. No, it's lovely to be here and, and talk to you across the Atlantic. Now, you describe yourself at the beginning of your book as an exile from the humanities. Can you tell, tell our listeners a little bit more what, what you mean by that? I detect, I suspect there's quite a, a backstory behind that. Yeah, I'm um, interested in, in late medieval and early modern women's religious writing. So I want to look at the way um, women negotiated the Christian um, narrative within their times um, in order to have autonomy and authority um, in their own lives and to make their own arguments. And um, I found this increasingly difficult with the imposition of various kinds of of theory. So it, it becomes quite hard to look at issues of gender, which essentially, if I'm looking at women's experiences in the terms of social history, there's a particular kind of feminism that I'm expected to use. There's a particular kind of analysis which which incorporates things like queer theory and post-colonial theory. And that isn't the kind of historian or literary analyst that I I want to be. I I want to look at how women were thinking and feeling at the time and how they were were using the beliefs of the time to live their lives. And it it just got in the way. I couldn't do work that I could be proud of in the end, so I stepped away from academia. So, so you uh, essentially you you felt like there was a, there was an overriding ideology that was inhibiting you from doing the kind of academic work that you wanted to do in order to in order to be sort of p- part of the the guild in the humanities. Would that be f- a fair way to put it? Yes, uh, there there are certain suggestions that you simply can't make. So I was penalized, for example, by saying that sexual selection exists, that there could be a reason why women are attracted to men with resources and men are attracted to 
women um, who are with for youth and beauty. So that this was in an argument um, to do with um, Shakespeare's play Othello, and there is there's a there are good evolutionary explanations for this, but this was considered to be conservative and it was considered to be destining women to some terrible beauty myth, as though we can just reprogram men and women and make them identical psychologically. And it, it just, it's ridiculous. And I, I just can't speak about anything unless I use the right language that assumes that I live in a, a patriarchy. I don't believe that I do. And um, that there is always constantly this gender power imbalance going on, which I haven't found there is. So you and I share different religious uh, commitments. You, it, when we chatted before, described that you would you would be in the category of kind of the new atheists, and yet we share the same concern for free speech, academic freedom. Are you noticing a movement of people across religious persuasions, across political persuasions? kind of resisting what you call cynical theories in your book? There's, uh, everything is always so very messy. I, now, who is the, you, you'll probably remember his name, um, the, the theologian who um, wrote Who's Afraid of, of Foucault and uh, taking Foucault and Derrida to church. So there's a, a Jamie, Jamie Smith. That's him, yeah. that's him. So there was, there's been Christians who have been keen to take on the original postmodern ideas. Then there is also a kind of woke um, Christianity, which seems to be rising in America in, among some of the um, Baptist and evangelical branches. But I find common ground often with uh, liberal Christians because I um, consider myself philosophically liberal. I don't mean... Um, left although i am left when i say liberal i, I don't i i mean you know that belief in freedom of of speech and belief so sometimes i i certainly find myself in having common ground with um, liberal muslims liberal jews liberal christians and um, even sometimes with conservative christians i i don't generally agree with them but i often find myself where i'm in a position that i need to defend their right to hold and express the beliefs that they have. Helen, you you describe uh, sort of the uh, one of the, some of the things that your book describes are are just are they are so relevant to what's gone on here in the last you know four or five months in the U.S. with all the racial tensions. And I notice on your you know, on your magazine you've had several pieces on. Uh, the, the racial issues in the United States, but some of these things that you describe phil- the phil- philosophically are now coming to to where people in the general culture at large are starting to recognize elements of what you describe more philosophically in the book. Uh, and so, what I what I'd like you you weave together three different themes in your book, um, and they they sort of run throughout the book. The theme of postmodernism. Uh, critical theory, particularly critical theory as applied to race and gender, and this, what you call social justice scholarship. Can you mm. can you just br- briefly, without I mean, we'll get into some of the <clears throat> some of the rest of the argument of the book, but can you just briefly tell tell our listeners how you are connecting those three things? Okay, so brief will be difficult, but I shall do my best. So. In postmodern thought, there were three particular ideas which had a lot of influence, ideas around knowledge, power, and language. 
This is a belief that knowledge is a construct of power. Powerful members of society, powerful groups get to decide what is legitimate knowledge and what isn't. And then they, um, they legitimize this as knowledge for society. And then the rest of society speaks into these discourses of power and they uphold them as though they are true. So this was the, the postmodern discourse analysis. When I then spoke of critical theories, so this is to be separated from the, um, the Frankfurt School and its um, approach critical theory, which is um, a very particular thing and not precisely what I'm looking at at the moment. When I'm talking about critical theories, it's the, the branches of theory that led off these ideas. So post-colonial theory, queer theory, uh, critical race theory, intersectional feminism, disability studies, fat studies, they all took these ideas of dominant discourses that are entirely culturally constructed and they're constructed to oppress people and that um, they need to be unpicked by um, theorists with the right kind of critical consciousness. The colloquial word for this critical consciousness is woke. So that, that's quite useful to sort of describe how they see themselves as, as having become awakened to systems of power and privilege that most of the rest of us can't really even see. And this, when it all comes together into a form of, of activism and applied um, scholarship, we refer to that generally as uh, social justice scholarship or social justice activism, because it could be calling on all or any of the theories, although um, dominant at the moment is critical race theory and queer theory. One of the game-changing thoughts in your book for me, Helen, is you describe how so many people would say that postmodernism was dead. And you're saying, no, mm. it went from being deconstructive to applied theory today, which is what we see in, for example, critical race theory. Can you make that connection between the two of those for us? Yeah, certainly. So um, people who say postmodernism um, died, they are referring very specifically to the proliferation of work that, that came from people like Jean-Francois Lyotage, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida um, in the 60s and into the 80s. So that was the pure postmodernism, the pure deconstructive approach. Now, some philosophers have taken this work in other directions. They're not aware, sometimes, of how they've been taken into cultural and identity studies. So if you speak to them about postmodernism now, they will look at you, at you as though you're mad and say, well, these ideas died um, in the, you know, maybe in the 80s, maybe in the 90s, maybe at the turn of the century. There's disagreement about when uh, postmodernism died, but we argue that it didn't die these very central features about how power works, how language works, how knowledge works, and how these systems of discourses permeate um, all of society have carried on. And with them, some, some core ideas about the need to focus intensely on language, the need to break down categories and boundaries, cultural relativism, not and standpoint epistemology, you know, thinking that knowledge is tied to your identity and your position in relation to power, the loss of the individual and of our shared humanity in favour of um, group collective identity. Now, all of this came from 
those original postmodernists. Now, they would not be huge fans of uh, the social justice theory today. Identity politics as we know it today and the, um, the very sort of simplistic work of people like Robin DiAngelo, they would quite, point, quite rightly point out is a meta-narrative. And the original postmodernists, they were above all against meta-narratives, those grand overarching explanations for how the world works and what the meaning of life is. So it's become quite clear that the social justice approach is a meta-narrative. Those first postmodernists would not approve of it. So I have some sympathy with academics who liked the postmodernists but don't like social justice when they say to us, but this isn't postmodernism because they see, as we do, that it's a corruption of it, it's a bastardization and a simplification of it. But to deny that these ideas are core features of postmodern thought, um, it just doesn't wash. It, it's the, the connection is too direct. So the, so the idea that uh, knowledge could actually correspond to what really is out there is something that the original postmodernists debunked, um, but yet, you, as you point out in your book, so much of social justice scholarship is a, you know, is a, a set of rigid absolutes uh, that we are 100% sure about and are treated almost as tenets of faith that you describe. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of an, an ironic shift. Yeah, it would be, except that the, the theorists address this very explicitly. So um, something happened in 1989 where a, a load of theorists from, from different disciplines um, wrote papers saying this po postmodernism stuff is good, it's useful, the cultural construction of everything, the deconstruction of things, it, we, it's great, we want to carry it on, but we have to accept some objective truth to exist or we can't do anything. We can't fight racism, for example, unless we accept that people of a certain race have certain experiences which are oppressive and that we should address them. So the second wave of um, what, what we call applied postmodernism saw something of a return to an acceptance of objective truth. But the objective truth it accepted was that these systems of power and privilege um, really do exist in society and really do affect people in consistent ways. Then as that solidified um, over the next 30 years and the scholarship built on itself, it became more clearly expressed, more simpler, more certain. So now if you read the work of somebody like Robin DiAngelo, you will find words of, of absolute certainty. So she will say it is impossible for a white person not to be racist. Mm. And that, that level of certainty just wasn't, um, uh, wasn't a thing for the, for the original postmodernists. One of the chapters that I found super helpful in your book was on critical race theory. You gave her a little bit of a background of it, kind of philosophical underpinning in some way we, sees it, we see it kind of manifesting itself today. Would you agree that it's helpful when it's descriptive, but not when it's prescriptive, and why? Um, what we're calling critical race theory, I would not agree is helpful um, either as a description or a prescription. So some of the antecedents to it, um, particularly the, the liberal sort of civil rights um, movement with uh, Martin Luther King, some of the work of um, W.E.B. Du Bois, and then you know going right back to 
um, people like Sojourner Truth and, and Frederick Douglass, then we're looking at um, people who addressed racism as a system in society that cast uh, black Americans as inferior, subhuman, uh, and to be mistreated. Now that um, well, that that um, description of what was happening is absolutely accurate, and the need to recognise that and to overcome that and any aftermath of that that continues. Racism has, still hasn't entirely gone away. So that kind of approach, Martin Luther King's kind of approach, is wonderful. But critical race theory is not that. So there are, are two kinds of it. There is the materialist kind, which is really quite um, radical. It considers itself empirical because it looks a lot at data. But this is where we get the black um, separatists, the black nationalists, the idea that racism is permanent, that it's ordinary, that it's everywhere, that it will never go away, that it hasn't improved at all over the last 50 years. But they're not likely to talk to you too much about discourses and bias and microaggressions. They're likely to talk to you about um, disparities and have cynical explanations for them. So that, that's the kind of work of someone like Derek Bell, who argued that uh, white people only ever um, allow rights to black people when it's in their own interests to do so. So he'd utterly deny that there has been any moral progress at all. But the, we, we see this, the descendants of this, it comes out it really in somebody like um, Ibram X. Kendi. So he's not really a postmodernist. He takes much more from that materialist approach. That is still a problem, but the postmodern approach, that came in with um, Patricia, sorry, um, and um, Kim Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, the idea of um, intersectionality, which was uh, contemporary politics linked to postmodern theory. Now, this is where it became a problem, because the politics she was talking about was the quite radical politics of the new left. You know, much more Malcolm X, Black Panthers than Martin Luther King, and connecting this to postmodern ideas of social constructionism. So this is when critical race theory took its turn towards applied postmodernism. And she said, um, her mapping the margins is the single most useful essay for looking at how this change happened. This idea that we want to keep some of postmodernism, but we want to make it actionable. So um, I, I would agree that, that there's always a kernel of truth in everything. And if the, the kernel of truth in even the worst critical race theory that I'm seriously concerned about is that we can have biases and those biases can be racist and that we should actually give some thought to them and, and think if we do harbour any kind of assumptions about the worth of another human being because of their skin colour, that we ought to rethink that. But that isn't something I think we need, these complex ideas of systems of whiteness and white fragility and white ignorance and white speak and all this complex um, theory which does not really correlate with reality all that well. I don't think that's helping the issue. Helen, one of the things that I think would be maybe breaking news to some of our listeners that, that comes out in your book is that uh, this the, the, the postmodern grounded critical race theory 
uh, has as part of its goal to dismantle what, what we call the classic liberal, small l, liberal tradition of free expression, universal human rights, equality under the law, things like that, things that we you know, that we have taken for granted in democratic societies for a long time. What, is that true? And if so, why is that? Because it would seem that, based on what you've said already historically, that the, the, the consistent application of the classic liberal tradition might actually be the best hope for minorities and women uh, you know, to, to, to just sort of to recognize sort of the full range of rights that they, are, that they have. Yeah, so they think that what liberalism is essentially is a form of whiteness. So the idea of liberalism um, is that we would just make black people more like white people and then they would be acceptable. Uh, so liberalism is seen as a, a white Western idea and it's also seen as working in the wrong direction. So for a liberal, the, the emphasis is to take uh, significance out of identity categories. I won't assume that, you know, because you're black, you should have a manual job. I won't assume that because you're a woman, you should have a domestic job. That, that is the liberal approach to taking social significance out of identity categories. Now, identity politics wants to put the, the, those um, power dynamics back into it. They want to put significance in there. They want to get race and they want to get gender and sexuality right up front and centre and use that as a source of empowerment. They see liberalism as a step-by-step -step incremental process, which it is, it, it works by discovering problems and making them better, making society more liberal one at a time. This isn't very satisfactory for revolutionaries who want to just remake the system um, you know, fr from the bottom up. Now, somebody like me, a liberal, um, a liberal feminist, as I often, as I called myself for a long time, I would say society is already fairly good. It's not perfect. The main problem, however, is that it's not including everybody. It needs to make sure that it includes women, it includes um, people of all races, it includes gay people. And once we have a society that, that includes everybody equally, we have a liberal society and we can keep improving that and improving that. That is not um, an approach that the critical race theorists think can work, that they want a revolution. It often is mixed with Marxism um, within critical race theory, often because of the influence of some people like Angela Davis. Um, many of the other theories don't have much elements of Marxism in there. So, uh, But quite often you'll hear from critical race theorists that we need to end capitalism, that we need to end patriarchy, that we need to end white supremacy, we need to end the nuclear family, we need to end everything, essentially, and remake this utopian um, ideal from the mess. I think this was one of the things that caught some people off guard in the last few months with the Black Lives Matter organization, uh, that it became clear that they stand for much more than just racial justice, but they also include things like dismantling the, the normative family, overthrowing capitalism, uh, ab abolishing a lot of the traditions of the, cl the classic liberal tradition like you're speaking to. Now, you also maintain in the book that uh, th this movement in this movement, reason, evidence, and science are also downplayed. 
um, if not uh, if not outright ignored. What, can you give us some examples of that? Because I, I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, the idea that there would be a movement that would sort of demonize, you know, reason, evidence, rationality, things like that, strikes most people as being somewhat odd. Yeah, that they would say that's because you are stuck in this meta narrative where you believe that it, it's purely common sense that um, that science and reason are good things. They, they wouldn't accept um, the evidence um, that actually they do work better than most than, than other ways of knowing that they think we should give equal uh, attention to. So threats to science and reason, they're seen as the d- developments of white Western men and they are therefore naturally suspect they are seen because of imperialism, because of slavery, of having trampled on and squashed out different ways of knowing that belong to black people, to brown people, um, to women, to, to people who aren't in the dominant groups. And so there's this idea of justice by um, bringing in other forms of, of knowledge. So you get some really ridiculous examples of this, and you asked me for an example, and I think the one that I find most concerning is um, turns up in fact studies. So they will argue, for example, that the belief that being morbidly obese is um, bad for you is a construct of biopower. Now that that's a Foucault's word, and biopower just means scientific discourses, and it's um, his understanding that uh, speaking in a scientific discourse makes something knowledge and it makes people believe it and then it is used to oppress people. So the idea that being overweight is bad is one of these oppressive biopower discourses. So they will argue um, that the fat studies reader is is wonderful um, for this. It would be a real eye-opener for anybody who doubts that this problem is happening. It, it says things at one point, um, I think it says, rather than looking at medical um, issues, we want to uncover knowledge that has already been unlocked by fat people, and we are going to do this in the form of feminist poetry. Well, that's, that's perhaps quite nice, but we do still need to focus on diabetes, on heart disease, on various kinds of cancer, on uh, joint problems and early death, which are associated with obesity. But According to fat activism, these beliefs are just a dominant discourse that has been drummed into people, and underlying it is fat phobia and, and hatred of fat people. Helen, one of the things you and uh, your co-author do so well in the book is you talk about how critical theory appears in, like you just mentioned, fat studies and in gender studies and critical race theory and intersexuality and post-colonial theory and you're explaining like the problems here descriptively what are you know a couple of the solutions that you think are most helpful that we should know moving forward i i think that we we first of all we we have to as a society apply the rules of secularism to critical social justice beliefs you know i i think in america um you have the an, an even stronger um, expectation and law around this. If um, you were a public employer and you uh, expected people to be trained in um, a Christ- in Christian belief, 
uh, to recite the Apostles' Creed or something like this before they got the job, this would be seen as a problem. This would be an imposition of a belief system which the, an American citizen has the right not to believe in. Now, when we have critical social justice, we see people obliged to go to trainings in which they are told that they must be um, racist, they must have um, been socialised into white supremacist ideas, they have to dismantle these, they, people are expected to write um, statements of diversity, equity and inclusion which um, sets out how they are going to, they, they, their acknowledgement of their own privilege and how they intend to um, address it and dismantle it and use their privilege for the benefit of other people. Now that is very, very similar to a religious um, a, a religious creed, an, an expectation to confirm and affirm a religious system. And this isn't something that should, Americans should be expected to do. It's not something British people should be expected to do. This is something, this is something that this doesn't belong in a category of, say, data protection um, training or health and safety. This belongs in a freedom of conscience. Um, place where people can hold these beliefs, they can express them, they can live by them, they cannot impose them on anybody else. And then on a, on a longer term level, we need to have the confidence to address the idea, these ideas. Now, I don't know if, if you two consider yourselves to be liberal, but um, J James and I do, and we argued for liberals to have a greater confidence in simply saying, I reject the premises of your belief system. I I believe in consistent um, opposition to discrimination by race, gender or sexuality. I believe in evidence-based research and, and just not um, following people down those rabbit holes where you are expected to go along with it, but feeling quite confident in saying, no, you are not going to say that I am a racist just because I'm white. You are not going to tell me I believe certain things. I will tell you what I believe. I demand the right to my belief, I will respect your, your right to your belief. To really have the confidence to, to push back and say this isn't the only way. You know, we all want to get rid of racism, we all want to get rid of sexism. We don't have to do it your way, your way is neither effective nor ethical. Well, I'd say d don't sugarcoat that response. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I think, that, I think that's, ver that's, that's very helpful. Um, Helen, let me ask you one, one last question before we stop. Um, what, what gives you hope that the, the classic liberal, small l liberal tradition of you know, liberal democracy, free speech, open exchange of ideas, universal human rights, things like that, can, can overcome some of the divisions in our countries and can can counter the ideology that you spend your book critiquing? Uh, my confidence on this tends to waver um, depending on what's happening in the news at, at any time because I think this liberal, the liberal societies that we've developed over the last 500 years are really quite um, unusual for our species. They're called weird, you know, Western educated, um, industrialized, rich and democratic. Uh, for a reason, because this isn't really what humans do. When we get together, generally 
uh, we decide that one set of rules, one set of beliefs is allowed, and then we make people stick to them. We tend to form hierarchies. This is is much more counterintuitive to humans. So it's, I think liberalism is a very fragile thing that needs to be reinforced and needs to be argued for from to, to children from a young age, so that people are confident in in understanding how it works and arguing for it. However, what does give me confidence that it will continue is that we've had it now. We have seen how good societies can be when everybody has the freedom to to speak. We've seen that science has advanced. We've made huge advances in things like child mortality and life expectancy and, and such um, tremendous technological and medical advances due to being able to think and speak as we see fit and not being constrained by any system. And we've done so well at living alongside each other, people with different political and religious beliefs. And, you know, there have been tensions, there always will be tensions, but it's really remarkable that we have been able to do this. So I, I don't think this is going to disappear into the ether. We, we have the evidence of it. We have people who remember how well it works. And I, I think we can have enough people who are willing to fight for it and not let it die. Yeah, thank you, Helen. I think, I mean, I, I think Sean and I share your, your hope and sense of optimism that, the, uh, that the, the classic liberal tradition, remember this is a small L liberal that's not that's not necessarily politically liberal, but this the the classic liberal tradition on which both of our countries were founded. Uh, that's what we're referring to, and it does it, it it does it has taken deep roots here. And I think, although I think it, it is being tested significantly with the level of division that we have in, in both of our countries today. Um, but I th- but I, I I think Sean and I both share your optimism that the liberal the classic liberal tradition is durable enough. It's been around long enough. It's been tested th- with just about everything that uh, human beings can throw at it, um, and it has proven to be I think the best system in which for people to live peaceably who have passionate differences about things that really matter. Uh, mm. So I want to I want to commend you for your book. Uh, cynical theories: How activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and why this harms everybody. By Helen Pluckrose and your colleague James Lindsay. Uh, I encourage our leaders to or our, our listeners to get hold of this. It's not it's not a particularly easy read. Uh, it's but it's really clear. I, I just I commend you for how clear you have made very complex subjects. Um, well, thank you. I, I hope what what I would say is that it shouldn't be beyond anybody who is um, prepared to, to sit down and concentrate. So, yeah. you know, you don't need to have any background at all or any higher education. We've uh, defined all of our terms, but it, it's probably not something you could, you know, consume easily standing up on the train or something. <laughs> you probably need to sit down quietly and think about it as you go through slowly. I think that's fair to say. I've had I've had the benefit of being able to do just that, and I found it very very helpful. Uh, and again, it's connected a number of dots that I had not been able to connect before. So, Helen, thank you so much for coming on with us. Uh, we really appreciate your time and your work, and all, all the best to you and to Aereo Magazine, uh, and in in the future. Well, thank you for having me on. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. 
To learn more about us and today's guest, Helen Pluckrose and her book, Cynical Theories, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app, and please feel free to share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything. <laughs>